Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of M's Drive-In. I'm your host Emily, bringing you into the exciting world of cinema, with some behind-the-scenes facts and everything you need to know about some of the best artists in the business. Today's episode is all about the enchanting work of Vincent Minnelli, so I hope you all enjoy and let's get right to it. According to the article Vincent Minnelli, written by Joe McElhenney on SenseOfCinema.com, To be a filmmaker for Minnelli, then, is to be a type of magician or enchanter. Indeed, many of his films very broadly assume the form and mode of romance, the worlds of fairy tale and myth, of the gothic and melodramatic, but just as strongly the comic and a world dominated by the possibilities of metamorphosis and transformation. Minnelli uses these themes in his work to create a contemporary tone within the 20th century. And because of this, a lot of his work implies how romance has a significant cultural weight that is measured against modern and psychological conflicts. Because of this, the characters in Minnelli's films aren't concerned with the quote-unquote Hollywood narrative of conquering a quest or fulfilling a desire, but they are rather looking for fulfillment and gratification within the aesthetic context of their needs. Because of this, the characters are able to intellectualize their own worlds, where they are fighting with their own ideas of self and intuition. McElhenney continues to state that such a drive is often impossible to fully achieve, that it is subjected to a variety of social constraints is something which the film dramatizes. In the context of social constraints, the audience often sees these conflicts as quote-unquote challenging the norms of society, and we are able to see how the characters interpret their place in a repressive and dominant environment. Minnelli uses these worlds to create a sense of enchantment and imagination within the story, but also is able to showcase harsher morals of the conflict. The first movie that we are going to talk about today is Mimi in St. Louis. This movie came out in 1944 and was written by Irvin Brecker and Fred F. Finglehoff and was based on the novel by Sally Benson. This movie was directed by Vincent Minnelli. Mimi in St. Louis is about the Smith family who have four beautiful daughters including Esther who is played by Judy Garland and Judy who is played by Margaret O'Brien. As Esther develops her crush on John, played by Tom Drank, who is the boy next door, Esther's father reveals he has a new job offer in New York, as Esther and the rest of the family have to adjust to the prospect of moving. The themes of this film are social class, families, and priorities. According to the analysis of Mimi in St. Louis on ObscureHollywood.net, The yearnings of these young people are in keeping with the social standards of the time. The young women yearn for romance, a husband, and their own home. The young men of the upper middle class aspire to graduate from college and become lawyers or businessmen. After graduation, they will marry, buy a home, and start a family. The most serious event in their lives is the proposed move from St. Louis to New York. I think this quote perfectly represents the theme of social class. Esther's father, Alonzo, who is played by Leon Ames, represents the affluent middle class of the early 1900s, and he is very much the character that reflects how a man is able to provide for his family. So when the prospect of moving comes into view for him, he feels his position in the home is undermined because of how everybody else in his family immediately reacts to this decision. 
How Alonzo is able to provide for his family is what Esther wants out of a relationship, specifically with their hopes of being with John. Esther is so close with her family that I think it's very easy to get the notion that what she sees based off of her family dynamic is what she hopes to get out of her future. And it's a really great example of how our families shape our perspectives for the future and how our parents are able to influence our decisions as we get older. Another example of social class is specifically the Halloween scene. Esther's sister Judy tries to play with a group of kids and they tell her she needs to throw powder in a neighbor's face and tell him she hates him in order to be accepted in the group. And it's a really small subtle scene but it is a scene that perfectly reflects how Judy is able to quote-unquote fit in with the other kids. And there's this really huge implication that there is this underlying comment of judgment based on social class itself. It's easy to get into a pattern of looking down on somebody simply because they don't have the same amount of wealth as you do. And I think that 2D with her friends and that dynamic, that is really the basis of what she feels throughout her friendships and as a young child being able to watch her come to terms with different relationships and different friendships and different dynamics is what drives her really violent reaction to finding out that she may have to move. When it comes to the theme of families, the Smith family as a whole definitely has the family always comes first mentality. After that scene where Judy throws the powder in the neighbor's face, she ends up getting into an accident with the trolley. John is the one that protects her and tries to help her, but Tootie lies and says that John was the reason why she got into that accident in the first place. So Esther goes over to John's house and immediately thinks that he did it and that her sister is telling the truth and blames him. And we see that she forgets about her romantic feelings for a second and becomes the quote-unquote protective big sister of Tootie. But as soon as she realizes the truth, she immediately goes back to John and makes up with him. So that in and of itself is a perfect example of how Esther is trying to learn the balance between being there for her family, but discovering her love for somebody else more as an individual rather than a big sister to her younger sisters. In the midst of all the chaos of each of the sisters trying to find their place and navigating different relationships in their lives, Alonzo announces that he gets a new job. And the reactions of each family member reflects a lot of the fears and anxieties of having to uproot your whole entire life. From there, we see that the Smith family is consumed by this uncertainty of their futures, and they're having difficulty processing change, especially processing change when you feel as if you finally have things figured out or you're in the process of figuring them out. Which leads into the theme of priorities. Priorities specifically in the form of relationships. The concept of home represents something different for each character in the film because each character gets something different out of their time living in St. Louis, whether it be friendships, relationships with parents, relationships with spouses, jobs. Each character is really trying to find their place and their belonging in their home space and in what they know. 
within this type of comfort, we see how each of the girls have prospered throughout the film. Esther and her sisters finally find love and develop potential relationships. Judy doesn't want to leave her friends and the social circle that she has come to be a part of. And their mother, Anne, who is played by Mary Astor, has come to appreciate the life and work that she does around the house for her family and is very comfortable with that. She is very comfortable with what she has, which leads us to the main question of what happens when we disturb our quote-unquote comfortable ways of living. Now, when it comes to this question, it always has a very negative connotation behind it because I think as a society, we are so used to equating change with something negative. And I think that this film does a really good job of showing that change doesn't always have to be seen as something negative. Just because you are able to shift your priorities doesn't always mean that things have to fall apart. And with that, Alonzo realizes that he doesn't need to take the job in order for his family to be happy and realizes he has everything that he wants right in front of him. And his family is able to help him realize that St. Louis is really where they are and where they are really meant to be. And that is what the ending of the film represents. The film itself represents that change doesn't always have to mean something bad as long as you are surrounded by the people that you love. As long as you are surrounded by people that bring out the best in you, they can help you get through anything. Next up is Father of the Bride. This movie came out in 1950 and was written by Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett and was based on the novel by Edward Streetner. This movie was directed by Vincent Minnelli. Father of the Bride is about Stanley Banks, who is played by Spencer Tracy. He is the father to his daughter Kay, who is played by Elizabeth Taylor. When Kay decides she wants to get married, Stanley has to deal with the financial and emotional turmoil of preparing for the wedding, with the help of his wife Ellie, played by Joan Bennett. The themes of this film are parental struggles, marriage, gender roles, and expectations. Stanley Banks mainly represents the theme of parental struggles. He has a very K is my quote-unquote little girl mentality and becomes very protective over her. When Kay brings up falling in love with Buckley, who is played by Don Taylor, Stanley immediately becomes judgmental over him without even meeting him yet. And he begins to picture what he thinks the perfect boy would be for his daughter. And due to his judgmental prejudices, Stanley automatically becomes aloof to Buckley. And that's where we see Ellie taking more of the reins and appears to be quote-unquote all in to help with the wedding. Ellie at one point in the film says a wedding is what every girl dreams of. And there's a really interesting point in the movie where the film touches on the importance of a change in generations. Stanley constantly brings up what marriage was like for him and says that, oh, I married Ellie when I was 25 and says to Kay that she's only 19 or 20. And there's a huge implication that Stanley thinks that Kay doesn't know what she wants because she's so young. So that type of mentality becomes Stanley and Ellie versus Kay and Buckley because Stanley is in a position where he makes many comparisons regarding what he has with Kelly versus what Kay has with Buckley, but it's simply out of the love and the protective nature that he has for Kay because he wants her to have everything that he has as far as happiness and a stable job and a stable home. As far as gender roles and expectations go, 
It is mainly in the form of what Stanley thinks Buckley should be able to provide for Kay. And he ends up making the argument that he barely knows Buckley and can he really provide a stable home? Does he have a stable job? And he even makes a line in the film saying he could be a serial killer for all we know. And in that context, Stanley basically dumps all of those worries onto Ellie. And as an audience member, we are able to see how Ellie navigates those issues. And the way that Ellie navigates those issues in difference from Stanley is that Ellie comes to the table with a female perspective. And her female perspective and her female take on marriage and a wedding is very different from a male perspective take on preparing for a wedding or juggling the challenges of parenthood. A lot of the worries that Stanley has for Kay as far as her relationship with Buckley definitely bubble up to the surface at different points throughout the film. Kay and Buckley end up getting into a fight over where they want to go on their honeymoon. And because of that, Kay basically calls off the wedding. And Ellie gives her the impression from a mother of the bride point of view that everything has to be quote-unquote nice and Kay has to be quote-unquote pampered. Stanley loves Kay so much that he really does want whatever she wants as far as her happiness and her stability goes. But he is secretly happy at the idea of the wedding being called off because he doesn't know how to come to terms with letting go of his daughter. So once Kay and Buckley make up, Stanley does have to come to the realization of letting go of his daughter as a young girl and accepting her transition into womanhood. And that is a huge part of what the ending of this film represents. Kay and Buckley end up making up and they have the wedding and they're about to leave for their honeymoon and Kay calls her parents to say goodbye because Stanley missed saying goodbye to her right before they left. And it's a really great commentary on the concept of adjustment, how Stanley is able to adjust to this huge change in his life because his daughter has grown up and is moving on to something else. But he knows that in his heart that Kay will always be his child, even if she's off living her own life, she'll always be a part of his in some way. Next up is Father's Little Dividend. This movie came out in 1951 and was written by Albert Hackett and Francis Goodrich and was directed by Vincent Minnelli. This is the sequel to Father of the Bride. So shortly after coming to terms with his daughter's marriage, Stanley Banks, played by Spencer Tracy, faces the possibility of becoming a grandfather. The themes of this film are growing up and getting older, familial issues, and gender roles and expectations. With the theme of growing up and getting older, Stanley feels that he is quote-unquote too young to become a grandfather. So we see him going to the gym and starting to work out and we get a implication that he is suppressing his feelings of getting older and doesn't want to admit to the idea that there is going to be another really significant change in his life. Stanley in this particular film represents being young at heart. Therefore, we see him becoming more flirtatious with Ellie while Ellie takes her role as a grandmother more seriously and thinks that it's fantastic to have a baby around again. In the first film, Stanley believes that Kay and Buckley are not ready to get married. In this film, he feels that they are not ready to have a child. He makes the statement that he believes they don't have a big enough house or steady jobs 
to really provide for this child. And he feels that they don't really understand how a child can affect a marriage. With that being said, Stanley immediately gets the idea that him and Ellie would have to care for the child full time, while Kay and Buckley do everything they can to provide for their child. So it's this idea of going to work full time to bring home money to support the child, but because you have to work full time, you don't get to spend enough time with your kid. This mentality that Stanley has creates a lot of familial issues between Kay's parents, Buckley's parents, and Kay and Buckley themselves. Both sets of parents immediately project their own ideas as if to say and to presume that they know what is best for Kay and her child. Which means that they begin to project the notion that they believe that Kay and Buckley should move in with them so they could see the baby every day and therefore they don't let the couple decide what is best for their child on their own. Which immediately causes a lot of tensions to mount. Kay begins to feel like less of a person because she is pregnant and she even makes the point that she can't do a lot of the things that she used to do. Which brings her to this overwhelming desire to prove her family wrong and to prove to herself that she is capable of still being her full individual self even as a pregnant woman. Which leads us into the themes of gender roles and gender expectations. Kay doesn't feel quote-unquote pretty enough as a pregnant woman, and Stanley even mentions her glow. Kay is in a position where she thinks that Buckley is cheating on her when he is really working overtime to prepare for the birth. Which leads into another context of the idea of harmful assumptions. We see Kay get so wrapped up in her own anxieties and fears about motherhood, she doesn't look at the full picture in regards to how Buckley feels about her. Which leads perfectly into the ending of the film. Because Kay and Buckley make up and they both realize that Buckley was really looking out for her because he was working full time and really does pay attention to her needs. And Kay realizes that Maybe, in a way, she was overreacting or assuming a lot of these wrongful ideas that just weren't true simply because of her own anxieties and fears. They were both projecting their own worries onto each other, and with the added pressure and worries of their parents, that's where a lot of the tension and a lot of the anxiety begins to form. But as soon as the baby is born, everyone is in awe of Kay and Buckley's son, except for Stanley. We see him become very aloof to the child, just as he was aloof to Buckley when they first meet. And in that sense, the film is another really great example of adjustment, because he eventually warms up to his grandson and realizes he can't imagine life without him. So both The Father of the Bride and Father's Little Dividend reflect a lot of the growth and the change that comes with a family dynamic. And sometimes we have to be able to let go and grow and change because we never know what good we are going to get out of an experience if we don't give it a try. Now moving on to some fun facts. For Meet Me in St. Louis, Marjorie Maine, who plays the maid Katie in the film, has worked with Judy Garland twice, in this movie and in the film Summerstock, which was released in 1950. In the song Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, Judy Garland refused to sing the grim original lyric Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, It May Be Your Last, to Little Margaret O'Brien. 
The star's creative optimism inspired songwriters Hugh Martin and Ralph Blaine to form the more optimistic lyric, Let Your Heart Be Light. The entire cast and crew were immediately impressed with Vincent Minnelli's attention to detail in every shot. He had consulted author Sally Benson on how the interiors of the Smith home should look, and she had provided a wealth of first-hand information. As a result, the look of each set was near perfection according to the time period. This film was based on the life of Sally Benson, who wrote the book. Some fun facts for Father of the Bride. Spencer Tracy wanted Katherine Hepburn for his screen wife, but it was felt that they were too romantic a team to play a happily domesticated couple with children, so Joan Bennett got the part. The picture of Kay that Stanley looks at on the nightstand is a real picture of Elizabeth Taylor as a child. In this movie, one of the gifts Kay gets as a present is a Venus de Milo statue with a clock in the stomach, which Stanley refers to as a quote-unquote stinker. The same gift makes its way into the 1991 remake of Father of the Bride and is still not received well. The June 10th date of Kay and Buckley's wedding was a nod by director Vincent Minnelli to his wife at the time, Judy Garland, because June 10th was her birthday. Some fun facts for Father's Little Dividend. This is a rare example of a Hollywood movie shot while the Hayes Code was still operational that openly shows a pregnant woman. Director Vincent Minnelli was in pre-production for An American in Paris at the time and shot this movie in just 22 days while the sets for the lavish musical with Gene Kelly were being built. This movie helped pioneer the modern notion of movie sequels, reuniting most of the principal cast from Father the Bride and picking up the plot from where the movie had ended. Joan Bennett and Elizabeth Taylor, who played mother and daughter in this movie, both played the younger sister Amy in a movie version of Little Women. Now on to some movie recommendations of the week. James Whale, Frankenstein, and Bride of Frankenstein. Going back and watching these original horror movies was literally so much fun. It is so apparent why Boris Karloff was as renowned and as popular and influential as he was within the genre simply because of the way that the makeup and the staging and the special effects were during that time. It definitely wasn't anything as big as how we look at horror movies now, but for the time it is still so legendary and so memorable for what James Whale was able to bring to the table as far as the genre itself. I also watched Irene Dunn and Melvin Douglas in the film Theodora Goes Wild. Irene Dunn was nominated for an Oscar for this performance, and it is very clear to see why. She's very, very charming in this movie, and so is Melvin Douglas, and they both have a really fun and witty chemistry that they both bring to the film, and it was all around such a joy to watch. Another really fun watch for this week was Danny Kaye's The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Danny Kaye plays a daydreamer who gets caught up in a conspiracy theory, and it's just another one of those really fun films to watch simply because of the way that Danny Kaye was able to use his body and his face and these little quips and quirks and jokes that he uses throughout the film was just such a joy to watch and it's always really really fun watching a Danny Kaye film because you are just able to see a lot of the talents that he has and what he was able to bring to the medium of film. As our time together comes to an end, I just want to thank everyone for tuning in to M's Drive-In. I'm your host, Emily, bringing you into the exciting world of cinema with some behind-the-scenes facts and everything you need to know about some of the best artists in the business. 
Keep an eye out for next week's episode when we take a look into some of my favorite comfort movies.